My guest today is Professor David Hand. David Hand is Senior Research Investigator and Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Imperial College London. He is a Fellow of the British Academy. He has served twice as President of the Royal Statistical Society. David has published 300 scientific papers and 25 books. He has broad research interests in areas including classification, data mining, anomaly detection, and the foundations of statistics. His application's interests include psychology, physics, and the retail credit industry. Today, we are going to discuss his new book, Dark Data, Why What You Don't Know Matters. Professor David Hand is with me on the phone line. Uh, David, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, David, before we discuss the concept of dark data and various anomalies that may arise uh, due to the presence of dark data in decision-making processes, uh, let us start with this question. Uh, why data is so important? Uh, why suddenly everyone is talking about big data and uh, uh, why data is being called uh, oil of uh, the 21st century? Yes, uh, very good question. I, I think, I mean, normally people answer that by saying that we've got more and more massive data sets, data sets, huge data sets, and because we've got very powerful computers so that they can process these large data sets. And I think those two things are very important. But there's a third thing which I think is perhaps even more important, and this is that data are now collected automatically so easily. In the old days, if you wanted to find to find something out, you went out with a clipboard or you went out with your ruler to measure something. Now you had electronic measuring, measuring instruments. You had data going from retail transactions, credit card transactions, going straight into the database without any human intervention. So data, giant databases are just accumulating automatically. You have um, risk monitors for health, all sorts of things where the data don't need to, um, an effort to collect them. They're just being collected automatically. So there's this huge resource accumulating. Then when you couple that with the power of modern computers to process the data, to add and subtract and compare and sort incredibly quickly, then you can look for all sorts of tiny little features and structures and aspects of the data in ways you couldn't before. So I think those, those changes are what, what's made it so important. Perhaps I should add that um, people do talk about data being the new oil, and it's certainly like oil in that vast fortunes can be made from it. We've only got to think of some of the big companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google and so on to, to realize that. But, of course, there are differences between um, oil and data. I mean, you, you can give your data away and yet retain it. You can find out all sorts of, make all sorts of discoveries within data. You can use it in all sorts of different ways. You can't do those things with oil. So I think the analogy is a bit stretched. But um, yes, people do often refer to data as the new oil. Okay. Uh, data is important. Uh, let us move on uh, to the next concept. If data is so important, any imperfection in data will lead to major 
anomalies. Uh, there is an issue of bias that is uh, sometimes present in data. Uh, now, bias is a familiar term. However, you have introduced this new term, dark data. What is dark data? Okay. Basically, dark data are data you haven't got, data you don't have. Um, they might be data you, you know you don't have, like uh, missing answers on a form or in a questionnaire, in a survey or something. They might be data you don't know you don't have, like the number of dissatisfied customers, for instance, who didn't bother to complain to you. You don't know that they're dissatisfied. But there are all sorts of other ways that dark data can, can arise as well. Um, for example, when you summarize something into an average, well, that's telling you nothing about the extremes. It doesn't tell you if everybody's clustered tightly about the average or if there are lots of people with a low value compensated for by somebody or something with a very high value. Um, so you're missing information. Um, definitions might be dramatically misleading as well. You might really be interested in a certain perspective on the data um, where you ought to be using a different definition, for example. So there are many ways in which data, you're missing something crucial in the data. Uh, the way you have described uh, dark data, uh, it reminds me this uh, famous quote by former U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld uh, that there are known knowns and there are uh, known unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in, in my book, I, I produce a taxonomy of 15 types of dark data, and the first two are indeed Donald Rumsfeld's known unknowns and unknown unknowns. It was interesting. When he, when he came up with um, his sort of rather convoluted um, description, he received a lot of media ridicule. But in fact, what he said made very good sense. There are known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Let me come back to my two previous examples. For example, the, um, uh, a questionnaire with missing responses. Or, or perhaps we could carry out a, a study of people where we ask them their age, their weight, their height, and their income, say. Well, some of them might have not, not replied about their weight because they're sensitive about it. Um, well, we know they had a weight. We just don't know what their weight is. So that would be a known unknown. In other situations, the example I gave was um, the number of dissatisfied customers who didn't bother to complain uh, to your organization, to your business. They're unknown unknowns because you have no idea how many there are, what there are, what they're dissatisfied about, and all sorts of things. You just don't know. So they're unknown unknowns. In the book, uh, you discuss three fundamental ways of collecting data, uh, and uh, then you highlight various uh, shortcomings and biases that may lead to the emergence, uh, uh, or should I uh, say, a presence of dark data in the data sets that we are trying to collect. Uh, let us discuss these biases and shortcomings uh, that exist when we are uh, collecting data. So there are various different ways you can collect data. You can, perhaps the most obvious thing is just to measure everything. Um, and we could ask all of the children in a school certain questions or all of the employees in a company, we can ask them. But perhaps some of them don't answer. They're, they're sick on the day we're carrying out the, the interviews and so on. So there will be missing data there. And of course, it's entirely possible 
that the people who are away, the people who aren't answering the questions, differ in some way from the people who are answering the questions. And that, that's where systematic bias comes in, which is particularly difficult to deal with. Um, that's the first way of collecting data when we ask everybody. Now, in many other situations, it's not possible to ask everybody or to measure, take every possible measurement. So what you have to do is take a sample. Now, there are clever statistical methods of deciding which, in my example, which people to include in your sample so that you get very accurate estimates of, for example, an average or other features of the population. But again, you have to draw it very carefully because all of the people you don't talk to are dark data, they're missing data. And if you're not careful about how you draw the sample, then you could get distorted impression of what's going on in the overall population. And then my third way of collecting data is the experimental way, where you deliberately manipulate and control the experimental conditions. So a good example of this sort of thing is a clinical trial, where, for instance, we might be comparing two treatments. Um, and we will randomly allocate people to the two treatments so that there's no way in which um, the, the experimenters can influence the results. But consider the possibility that one of the treatments might be very effective and it makes the symptoms go away. And it's just possible that people might think, well, I'm no longer ill. I won't come back um, to the clinic and get measured again. I won't return to the clinic the next time. The next time I'm supposed to go back to get the results measured. So you would never discover that the thing worked then. I'm taking the deliberately extreme example. But um, the dropouts from the clinical trial would dis distort the results. So in all three of these methods, one way you try to collect all of the measurements, the second way you take a sample of measurements, and the third way you manipulate and control the conditions under which the measurements are taken, all three of those are at risk from bias. Now, I I've given some examples, just three little examples of ways in which the bias can impact these different ways of collecting data, but there are many other ways, of course. In the book, uh, you discuss unintentional dark data uh, that may exist uh, due to the shortcomings and biases that we may not be aware of at the time of data collection. Uh, you just uh, uh, um, briefly discussed uh, uh, these points. Uh, and then you also talk about uh, intentional dark data that might be used for uh, fraud, uh, and uh, deception? Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, fraudsters, con men uh, and, criminal, um, and criminals in general, um, try to mislead you. So they might feed you false information. So that, well, think, of, think of Bernie Madoff, for instance, the investment manager. He, he uh, misled his customers into thinking that their investments were making money uh, for a long time. And so he was feeding them false data. He was feeding them dark data, data which were misleading, which described, which failed to describe the true situation. So, yeah, sometimes people do fabricate data. They, they intentionally make up incorrect data, hiding the true data from you so that the true data are dark data. It means uh, that data collection uh, is a hugely important process and uh, we should try to further fine-tune uh, data collection processes uh, to ensure that uh, these biases uh, are removed uh, and addressed uh, at the time of uh, data collection. 
Yeah. Under some circumstances, in some conditions, it is possible, and, and people have worked on producing standards to try to ensure that high-quality data are collected. But in other situations, it's, it's not possible, um, especially if... Well, let me come back to that example that I mentioned a moment ago of dissatisfied customers who don't bother to complain. Uh, you just don't know about those data. So there's no way, no matter what your standards are, that you can you can um, get that information. Well, let me give you another example from a completely different area. Suppose we're we're uh, astronomers, and what we're doing we're looking with an optical telescope at the skies, and we're recording details of all the stars we can see. Well, it's possible that there are stars which we can't see. Either they're too far away and they're too dim, or maybe they don't they don't um, radiate in the spectrum that we can see. So we don't see those. So we would have no idea that they existed, um, so we wouldn't include them in our data sets. So again, no matter what your standards are, you, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't include those, so you'd miss those. So bias would come into your data sets and, and your conclusions. In other circumstances, when you've got very rigidly constrained types of data, then yes, it, uh, perhaps in a survey, for example, then um, you can attempt to impose standards to ensure that high-quality data are, are, are met, uh, are, are obtained. And, and indeed, people do that with surveys. If people refuse to answer survey questions, then there are quite clever methods of going, of ensuring, of trying to go back through different avenues and so on to get answers from them. And then also ways of trying to compensate for the fact that they might be missing. Uh, just uh, staying with uh, this uh, topic of uh, data collection, uh, it is hugely important uh, that the collected data does not have uh, any bias. Uh, some of these data sets are used to train intelligent systems and machine learning algorithms. So if there are shortcomings in the data, if there is any bias in the data, uh, or, or using the terminology that you introduce in this book, if there is dark data in the data set, the resulting intelligent system will have the same bias, will have the same shortcoming. That's absolutely right, and that's a, a problem which has been increasingly recognized um, with, with, as, as AI systems, machine learning systems, become be more and more widely used. Um, you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, if, you give a, if you give such a system a, a distorted data set, then the models that it produces are likewise distorted, and so when they go on to classify other people in personnel selection or, or whatever, then they will um, adopt the same biases. They will impose the same biases. So uh, one needs to find ways around that to try to balance the data sets to, to avoid that. To do that, of course, first you've got to recognize that there are those biases there, and that's not always easy. It's a, a fundamental problem because, I mean, it's easy if you've got another population to compare it with. You can say, look, uh, there's a difference here. But if this is the only set of data you have, then recognizing that it's distorted and biased and is missing crucial things is not necessarily very easy. Well, it is very uh, interesting and, and, and very important uh, to note that uh, a bias 
that a human being might have uh, who is collecting and preparing uh, a data set uh, which is then used to train uh, a machine learning algorithm uh, the resulting intelligent system uh, might have uh, the same bias exactly that's that's spot on yeah yeah uh, david uh, your book dark data uh, why what you don't know matters uh, is organized in a very interesting manner uh, in the first few chapters uh, you describe and define dark data and then after that in each chapter you discuss one particular field where anomalies may arise due to the presence of dark data did you follow uh, a particular approach while uh, structuring the book like this or uh, did it happen naturally uh, did it happen organically I, i to some extent it naturally came out like that in the sense that the the, the first part of the book is concerned with sorts of problems um from um subconscious selection distortion and so on or or or, or natural selection distortion through uh you've already mentioned intentional dark data fraud and so on um and 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 a discussion of how these things can occur in science not deliberately but they still occur in science as a first part of the book the sort of problems of dark data if you like i'm trying to get people worried in the first part of the book so they want to read on to discover what to do about it um then in the second part of the book i talk about what you do about how you detect the problem and and then how you can overcome it and then right at the end there's a chapter which i basically think of as strategic application of ignorance in fact it is possible using some clever ideas to take advantage of dark data and use it to your advantage so that's basically the structure i start by giving illustrations of the problems in the different areas through the three different data collection mechanisms that we we discussed earlier describing the sorts of problems describing the use of gaming uh, and so on and how that can manipulate things and fraud and things like that i talk about it in science and then what you do about it and then finally how you can use it to your advantage let us discuss uh, some of these uh, topics uh, in more detail now uh, what is strategic dark data uh, can dark data be used um, intentionally and uh, strategically for uh, competitive uh, advantage yes absolutely i mean the, perhaps the uh, one classic example of this is well here are two standard examples i'll, I'll talk about more more sophisticated modern examples in a moment but two standard examples are things i mentioned earlier a survey in a survey you might have a million people in the population you might want to find the average age of the population but well, asking a million people their ages so that you can calculate the average is going to take a long time and of course while you're doing that people are going to grow older some are going to be born some are going to die move away whatever so it's a tough problem but what you can do instead is just ask say a thousand of them their ages and you can do that quite quickly and if you choose that thousand properly with a random sample then you can get a very good accurate a very accurate estimate of the average age for instance and you can say um you can put a conf- confidence limits on on your conclusion but of course if you only take a sample of a thousand you know their ages so you're treating all of the others as dark data 
but the way you've chosen them means that the rest of that dark data is not important. But the, the key point here is that you're strategically choosing all the rest of them as dark data. You're deciding which ones to measure. So you're basically using the dark data principle. In, in um, similar sort of thing in clinical trials where one uses what's called blinding. The researchers, the doctors giving the medication and the patients themselves don't know which treatment they've received. The drugs or whatever it is are packaged identically so that they don't know um, that they've got the exciting new treatment versus the placebo, which has no active ingredient. They don't know which one they've got. So they can't, they, there won't be any um, subconscious sort of impacts on the, on the effect. So you're hiding the two treatment, the two true treatments from the, from everybody involved in the study. So those are two standard examples of, of um, strategic examples of dark data. But there are, there are other more, more sophisticated ones um, which essentially um, generate data which might have arisen. So they're data which you could have seen, but you don't see. And there are a number of advanced statistical methods, bootstrap, boosting, um, regularization, and so on, as well as simula simulation, of course, which use these ideas where, where they basically generate new data sets which you didn't actually see, but which could have arisen. So a different kind of dark data and you can use those to lead to better statistical models, lead to greater understanding, lead to better decisions. Uh, you say in the book that uh, dark data is present uh, in scientific investigations as well. Uh, what is the nature of dark data that is present in scientific uh, investigations? And how can we make sure that we address the presence of dark data in scientific studies? Uh, and how can we make sure that uh, we are not reaching incorrect conclusions and then we are not making wrong findings? Well, there are a number of ways that, yeah, my, my earlier example of uh, an astronomer looking with an optical telescope at the, the sky, the sky is looking at the stars and not seeing dark stars or stars which are so, which are too dim to be seen. Um, in, in the case of astronomy, that risk is well understood and people have developed models for the probability that stars will be seen depending upon how far away they are so that they can adjust for the fact that they've got this distortion. It's called Malmquist bias. They've got this sort of distortion going on, and, and they can adjust for that. So that's one way. Understanding the data connection process, recognizing its shortcomings, and adjusting for that in your statistical model. Um, but there are, there are rather more profound ways which um, dark data can come into science. One is when you carry out an experiment, you often, you, you, you have to decide which data points to include in your analysis. Now, in an ideal world, all the measurements would have been taken perfectly. You would include all of the measurements. But often, things are not quite perfect. Maybe somebody bumped the laboratory bench when, when a measurement was being taken, and you're not sure whether that one is sufficiently valid to be included. So you've got to make a decision. Should you include it or shouldn't you include it? And there are many other situations like that where you have to make decisions. The classic case, which I discussed briefly in the book, is Robert Millikan measuring the, trying to decide whether electrical charge came in discrete intervals, the charge on the electron. Um, and he made lots of measurements, and he had to decide, should he include them all? And he 
decided not to include them all. Um, in fact, um, in one of his papers, he said, I have included them all. But if you look at his notebooks, it seems that there were other measurements which weren't included. So at first glance, it looks as if he has been a little bit dishonest and perhaps has chosen the uh, results which favour his theory. But in fact, if one digs a bit deeper, it seems that that's not what happened. The ones which he decided not to include were the ones which he used for calibrating the instruments in the first place. But, but the key point there is that in many experiments, you have to, you, you can't just include all of the data because you think that some of them are not of sufficient quality to be included. So you have to make subjective decisions and you have to do that very carefully because obviously if you're not careful, biases, subjective biases tied up with human beings can, can, can creep in. And we've seen a wonderful example of these subjective biases a few, year, a few years ago with the um, uh, crowdsourcing um, information about galaxies, where it was observed that there seemed to be more galaxies which appear to rotate one way than the other way. But that wasn't because that was true of galaxies. It was, in fact, a, a human preference for observing things rotating one way. Science uh, is important, uh, scientific findings are important and these findings uh, are used uh, uh, to, to, to inform uh, and to develop uh, effective policies and plans. A presence of dark data in scientific studies uh, poses a huge uh, challenge. Absolutely. Um, the short answer is that I think you should always approach conclusion, you should always approach a data set with caution. You, you really ought to go back and say, how did you collect the data? Give me all the details. And in an ideal world, you would do that. Of course, that's impracticable. I mean, maybe one wouldn't understand all the details, but I haven't got the time anyway. Um, so at some point, you have to rely on people having, having been honest and having not been themselves subject to too many subjective biases. Um, having said that, I, I think it's very important to understand the, the nature of science here. Um, science never gives uh, an absolute answer. This is the way things are. It's always contingent upon other data coming along or a discovery that perhaps there was some distortion about the way the data in that particular result were collected, which, which means that the conclusion should be slightly different. But basically, there are so many experiments, so much analysis going on in science that it sort of en masse moves in the right direction. Having said that, one also one, one often sees, especially in the context of, of food and what's food's a good few, what food's a bad few, what medicine's a good few, what medicine's a bad few. You know, one day coffee's good few, one day the next day it's bad few. And this is partly because of um, studies which don't collect the data very well, not very rigorous control on the nature of the data. But it's also partly because these sorts of things are inherently complex and um, maybe coffee is good for, for you in some ways and not so good in other ways. So it depends what you're looking for and how you're measuring these things. You say in the book that a, uh, a particular type of dark data has hit uh, the news uh, over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, that is so-called false facts or fake news. Uh, talk to us about uh, this category of dark data. Yeah, this is a particularly sort of 
pernicious kind of dark data where people basically ignore the evidence, ignore the facts, ignore the scientific studies, and, and essentially make up their own data. Um, which, of course, what more is there to say, really? I mean, it's, it's the, the, way, the way to um, tackle these sorts of problems is to go back to them and say, okay, where did you get that information from? Where did you get the data from? If they tell you where they got the data from, then you're able to go back and check that source and you can follow it back to wherever it came from. Of course, if they're not prepared to tell you where they got the data from, that in itself tells you something. I reviewed uh, a publication uh, about fake news uh, recently uh, and an interesting observation uh, that was made in that study is that whenever you try to challenge fake news, a typical response is, well, everybody is saying this. And, and that's related to the sort of echo chamber idea, isn't it? That, that, that if you go on the web and say, I think this, when you just make up some sort of thing, you know. Um, other people, Twitter and so on, other people can pick it up and after a while it can come back to you and you hear, as it were, from somebody else the same thing. So you say, ah, I thought that as well and other people think it, I must be right. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, when you try to challenge fake news and receive uh, this typical response uh, that everybody is saying this and if this response comes uh, from an important person uh, from an important politician uh, one implication is that it immediately goes on social media and when you search for this fake news it seems that everybody is searching for this fake news uh, which can be misunderstood that uh, yes, everybody is uh, saying this. Exactly. I, that's a beautiful example. Beautiful example. That's right. It just goes in a giant circle, but it doesn't actually come from anywhere. There are no real numbers anywhere. Yes, yes. Very nice example. Uh, after discussing various ways uh, in which uh, dark data uh, can cause problems, uh, the book then discusses uh, how to detect dark data, uh, how we should uh, deal with dark data. Uh, and then it goes beyond uh, that and discusses that how can we actually take advantage of dark data. Uh, let us uh, look at these one by one. Uh, so uh, how should we deal with dark data? Uh, talk to us about the ideas, tools, methods and strategies uh, that have been developed uh, to deal with dark data that uh, you discuss uh, in, in this book. Okay. Again, it will depend on exactly what sort of dark data you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a survey where some of the answers aren't given, then that's okay. It's obvious that there is a blank there and no answer given. So that's easy to detect. Other situations are more subtle. The example, again, of, of the um, distant stars being too dim to detect. In those sorts of cases, one way that you can often um, spot that there's something going on is if the distribution of values isn't what you'd expect. Perhaps, just to take a, a straightforward example, you would have expected a normal distribution, but you observe that there are no values above a certain level. It's as if the top values, the more extreme values, have been missing, have been cut off. 
if that's the case, then that's a, a sign that there, there um, might be dark data. In fact, these sorts of ideas are, are used in, in, um, in medicine and what are called funnel plots, um, which is a way of detecting the fact that um, studies which don't um, produce a result one way or the other are often omitted from from the um, from a, well they often don't get so far as to be published they're just omitted from the, the scientific literature um, and you can spot that because in these these particular kinds of plots called funnel plots there are great big areas where there are no data points so it's, it's it deviates from what you'd expect you'd expect the data to be sort of randomly distributed and there is a gap where there is no data and that should arouse suspicion so so those are examples of ways where you can um, spot that there's a problem. Another another example is is something called benefits distribution. This is a this is used in fraud detection and in other areas. It's quite an interesting idea. Uh, basically, in in certain sorts of naturally occurring sets of numbers, um, it tells you how often the first digit of these numbers is a one, how often it's a two, how often it's a three, and so on. And you might think, if you haven't come across this idea before, that well. There would be about the same number of numbers starting with a one, as with a two, as with a three, and so on, all the way up to nine. But in fact, that's not true. The majority of the numbers start with a one. That's the most common number that they start with. The next most common is a two, and it decays all the way down to nine, where the fewest numbers start with a nine. Too complicated to explain why in a short time. But this is called Benford's distribution, and, and you can actually observe it in real data sets if you go and measure heights of mountains or, or whatever, and, and then look at the distribution. You see that it does conform to this sort of decaying frequency for the first digits. Um, so if you've got a, a data set which doesn't conform to that, depending upon the nature of the data set, it might arouse suspicions that something funny is going on. And in fact, in a consultancy project some years ago, I am um, working for a big investment bank on, a, on anti-money laundering. I explored applying um, the Benford distribution to their transactions and indeed spotted some anomalous patterns of transactions. There were too many numbers beginning with three in, the, in their data. You also talk about the benefit uh, of dark data. Can we benefit from dark data? We can, and these are the sorts of things that I was talking about earlier. We, we do it with surveys, we do it with experiments and, and uh, uh, blinding and randomized controlled trials and so on. But we also do it in, in not so obvious ways, but with more sophisticated techniques, this sort of notion that when you have a theory, a model or a hypothesis, you can generate data from that model, data you haven't seen, but which could have arisen if that model is right, and you compare it with the real data. So you're generating new kind of data, so it's a different kind of dark data, and comparing it with the real data. But there are many other statistical techniques, uh, machine learning techniques, which use these sorts of ideas as well. Um, so, for example, boosting is, is a nice example. This is to do with classification problems, where the aim is to decide, uh, is this case a, a class one or class zero, for instance? You have lots of measurements on each case, and the aim is to assign each case to a class one or class zero. The way boosting works is it 
takes the cases you've got wrong, the misclassified cases, and makes copies of them. It increases their number. And then it applies the machine learning or whatever algorithm to the enhanced data set, the original data with this extra data that you didn't have before, this extra type of dark data. The fact that you've increased the numbers of cases which have been misclassified, the ones you got wrong before, means that the machine learning algorithm now begins to put more focus on those cases. So it's more likely to get them right now. So you change the way the machine learning algorithm sees the data by adding in this extra dark data. And boosting turns out, to, which is what this tool is called, turns out to be a very powerful way of improving the predictive ability of machine learning and statistical algorithms and AI algorithms. What I'm, what I'm really saying is, if you're clever, you can strategically use dark data in a way that will enable you to make better decisions. At the end of the book, uh, you present a thorough uh, taxonomy of dark data. This is a long uh, and thorough uh, taxonomy. Uh, why uh, you felt a need to organize various types of dark data uh, in this manner? Okay. As I was working on the book and as I was thinking about these problems earlier, I recognized that they all had something in common, all these issues, these, these particular data quality issues had something in common. It was that you could see them as missing something crucial, something which in the data you had got, you weren't observing. Perhaps it was simply because values weren't recorded or because you were the numbers were rounded too much so you didn't know the details or, or all sorts of things. Maybe there was information asymmetry. The, the other guy knew something that you didn't and so on. And I... As I worked through, I decided that all of these, the different, the 15 different types that I've enumerated were sufficiently different to merit drawing attention to in their own right. Um, I should say that I have got 15 types there, but it's probably not exhaustive. Um, new types of data are being collected all the times, uh, all the time. We're getting increasing numbers of amounts of unstructured heterogeneous data, text, images, video clips, and so on. Um, it's entirely likely that maybe other types will be added to this. But I think these, these are, in some sense, the core types. Um, and, and most cases of dark data fit into one or more of these types. Oh, perhaps I could just make a point there. Um, when you are carrying out a scientific study or analyzing business data to make a decision to steer your, your corporation or whatever, you might spot that there is certain kind of dark data, a certain kind of missing data, in your data, you might say, well, what about all these people that aren't included, their, their opinions aren't included in the analysis, or, or whatever it is? Well, just because you've spotted that problem, and you can then try to do something about that problem to rectify it, doesn't mean that you don't have other dark data problems. These dark data types can occur together in a sort of diabolical synergy. Um, so one has to be constantly on the alert. Uh, David, we are uh, discussing your new book, Dark Data, uh, Why What You Don't Know Matters. Uh, this is an interesting read. Uh, and uh, for various topics and for various aspects of uh, uh, data collection, uh, various aspects of uh, data analysis, you have presented uh, a variety, a diverse variety of uh, examples. 
and uh, uh, you have uh, even included this example uh, when uh, someone uh, tried uh, to sell a Eiffel Tower. Oh, yeah. Rustic, yeah, Victor Rust, Rustic, yes, absolutely. Yes, he, he uh, this is a nice example of what we were talking about earlier, D- deliberate use of dark data. He, he, he misled, he, he um, is a con man, and he approached lots of scrap metal merchants and said, the government, the French government wants to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap. Um, which wasn't unreasonable because it had been built some, year, some years earlier for a World Trade Fair. Um, but they said it was too difficult to maintain. He, he said it was too difficult to maintain. The government wants to sell it for scrap. So he took them on a tour of the Eiffel Tower. He had, he had forged papers saying that he was from the ministry. He took them on a tour of the Eiffel Tower um, and invited them to tender for, um, for buying it and, selling it and, and taking, taking it away, these scrap metal merchants. Um, and he picked out one person um, and, in fact, took a bribe from this person to choose him as the one he was going to sell the Eiffel Tower to. So not only did he get the bribe, but then he also got the payment for the Eiffel Tower from, from this man. But the point is that he had, he had misled them. He had fed them false data, uh, false information about what was going on. Um, uh, so a nice, a wonderful example of... Um, uh, fabricated data, deliberately fabricated data with the intention of misleading. And a very interesting point here is that uh, this person successfully convinced the potential buyers that this deal uh, must be kept secret. Exactly. That was, that was a beautiful twist. Uh, clearly a very masterful con man. That's right. So he, he, you know, he, he pointed out that the French population for whom the Eiffel Tower was an iconic structure, would not be very happy if it was sold for scrap, so they mustn't tell anybody. David, we are discussing uh, your new book, uh, Dark Data, uh, Why What You Don't Know Matters. Uh, This is an interesting book, uh, full of very interesting and intriguing real-world examples. Uh, Before we finish this discussion, uh, is there anything else uh, that uh, we should touch upon? Uh, Any important point that I might have uh, overlooked? No, I think your questions were very comprehensive and and really covered it very nicely. The only concluding thing that I would like to add is that the the take-home message from it is that you should approach data sets, maybe with suspicion is putting it a little strongly, but with caution. You should always ask yourself, where did these data come from? Could there be something missing, some sort of distortion coming in, which is misleading me? Professor David Hand, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you very much indeed. I've tremendously enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. Right. Bye-bye.